Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Well, today is the fifth Sunday. That happens four times a year in which we have five Sundays in one month. And every time we have a fifth Sunday, what we like to do here at Whitefields is what we call Youth Takeover Sunday. So that's why you see our youth involved in leading worship. You're gonna see them out in the foyer. They're involved in greeting and security. They're involved in teaching in the classes. And so I just wanna encourage you that welcome them when you see them. Go up to them, encourage them, say something nice to them because, you know, we really want them to understand that this isn't just like their parents' church, but this is their church. They're not just the future of the church. They are the church today. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit in our message today as well because it's part of our text today in Titus chapter 2. So as you open in your Bibles, open up to the book of Titus chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be continuing our study. We've been in a series in which we've been studying through what are called the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles are three letters written by the Apostle Paul to two young pastors in the early church, Timothy and Titus. We've already studied through First and Second Timothy, and today we're continuing our study as we work our way verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Titus. So as we open up there to Titus chapter 2, please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we enter into a study of God's Word. So Lord, we come to you now just with Humble hearts, Lord, humble hearts that desire to receive, that desire to be shaped by you. And Lord, we pray that your word, as it goes into our lives, that we wouldn't just hear it and nod our heads and understand, Lord, but that it would translate into practical change in our lives. Lord, not just for our good, but for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would do a work through us or in us through your word today as we study it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was sitting together and eating lunch with my friend Chris. My friend Chris was my best friend for several years, and he said something to me while we were eating lunch that I'll never forget. About six months prior to this conversation, I had made a decision to get serious about following Jesus. And it was actually Chris who had gone with me to church for the very first time because I was nervous to go by myself. And after that first visit to the church, I went back every week but I went back alone. Chris only came with me that first time. And so week in and week out, I started going to this church. And one of the things I heard at the church during announcements, they said that there was this men's Bible study. So I thought, cool, I'll go join that men's Bible study. So I go to the Bible study and there were about 10 or 12 other guys who were at least all 20 to 30 years older than me. I was by far the youngest person there. But they welcomed me into their group. And to this day, I still have this Bible. Actually, I brought it with me. I have this Bible. I keep it on my dining room table. And this Bible was given to me by the men in that Bible study when I moved to Hungary later on as a missionary. And inside the cover, I have messages, you know, from Bob and Frank and all these guys who wrote messages to me and gave me this Bible and signed it when I moved to Hungary. But back to that conversation with my friend Chris at lunch that day, he said something to me, which he meant as a critique and a criticism, as something negative. But to me, it was an incredible compliment. Here's what he said. He said, man, you know, ever since you got on this whole Jesus kick, you've really changed. And now he said that to me out of frustration, right? He was frustrated because I wasn't interested in doing some of the things that we used to do together before. 
He was frustrated that I wasn't interested in the same conversations and jokes that I was before. And yet, even though he said that out of frustration and as a critique, I felt that it was one of the greatest compliments I'd ever received. Because as a Christian, I understood that if what I believe isn't changing the way that I live, if other people can't tell the difference, then something's wrong. Like, if I study the scriptures and worship God with my lips, but nothing in my life ever changes, if my attitudes and actions aren't being transformed, then the Bible itself says that I really need to consider and examine whether my faith is even real at all. So for me, when Chris told me that I'd really changed ever since I began following Jesus, I was encouraged and I was glad that other people could actually see the transformation that was taking place in my life. And I asked Chris, I said, well, listen, you say I've changed, but are these changes bad? And he said, well, they're not bad. They're just different. It's not, not the way it used to be. And I said, well, listen, man, if you can accept me and the new me and who I am, then I still want to hang with you. And to this day, Chris and I are still friends. In fact, later this year, my family is going out to spend some time with him and his wife. And and that men's group that I was a part of, I'm still in touch with some of those men even to this day. And I'm thankful that despite our differences in ages, they welcomed me in and they encouraged me in the things that I was going through, but they also invited me to contribute and encourage them as well. See, what I brought to the group was youthful exuberance. But what they offered me was wisdom and experience that I couldn't get from my peers. And the end result was that everybody benefited. And the big theme of the book of Titus is that genuine faith leads to practical change in your life. If you want to write that down or remember it, that's what Titus is all about. True faith, genuine faith in Jesus leads to practical change in your life. And today here in chapter two, we're going to see some of the concrete ways that God wants his word to affect and shape the ways that we live in our lives. And we're also going to see how that applies to four specific groups of people. Maybe you belong to one of those groups. Here's who they are. Older men and younger men and older women and younger women. Basically, whoever you are here today, this section has something to say to you. And one of the interesting things it's going to show us is a vision for a multi-generational church in which each group in the church benefits from and ministers to the others so that everybody wins. So the title of today's message is How Sound Doctrine Leads to Sound Living. How sound doctrine leads to sound living. Here's what we're going to see in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We're going to see that sound doctrine leads to practical change, which benefits people and brings glory to God. I'd love it if you'd take that sentence, make note of it somehow, write it down, save it in some way, and take that thought with you. Let it stew and roll around in your mind this entire week as you go about your week, as you remember what we studied today. Sound doctrine leads to practical change, which benefits people and brings glory to God. So we're going to take that sentence and break it down into a few parts and use it as our guide for working through the verses in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So Titus 2 begins with these words. He says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, Titus, 
He was a young pastor who was stationed at this time on the island of Crete, which is off the southern coast of Greece. Titus was not originally from Crete. He had come to Crete as part of a missionary team led by the Apostle Paul. So he had come with Paul and probably some others, and they were on this missionary journey in which they traveled throughout the island of Crete, telling people about Jesus and inviting them to put their faith in him. And this evangelistic campaign apparently was very successful because many people on the island of Crete had turned away from their pagan beliefs and become followers of Jesus. And so when Paul and the other parts of the missionary team at the end of this missionary excursion, when they left and went elsewhere, Titus stayed behind. He stayed on the island of Crete in order to help these new believers get established and grow in their faith in Jesus. And so Titus was there both to pastor and teach these new converts and to raise up local leaders and establish churches for these believers to gather in, to worship and grow as disciples of Jesus, and then from there to reach more people and their communities. And so Paul the Apostle, he wrote this letter to Titus, both to encourage him and to instruct him in this work that he was doing there in Crete. But at the end of chapter one, which we looked at last week, Paul also warned, him, or warned Titus about a group of people who were traveling around the island of Crete, spreading false teachings amongst the new Christians. These teachings were strange. They were heretical. They were contradictory to the scriptures and the teachings of the Bible and contradictory to the true message of the gospel of God's grace. And so when Paul says here in verse one of chapter two, when he says, but as for you, that's a contrast, right? He's telling Titus how Titus should be different than the false teachers. In contrast to the false teachers, Titus was to teach that which accords with sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine refers to that which is true and healthy and correct. Both Titus himself and the leaders that Titus was to raise up they needed to be people who, as Paul said in verse 9 of chapter 1, held fast to the word of God and to the sound doctrine and were able to teach it to others. But here's the thing. When Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, teach that which accords with sound doctrine, he isn't merely telling Titus to teach true things. I mean, that would be a given, right? Teach true things and not false things, obviously. But what Paul's actually telling him to do here is to teach people how to live as a result of sound doctrine, as a result of the things which the Bible teaches. To help you see that more clearly, let me show you how this verse is translated in two other translations. For example, in the New Living Translation, it translates this verse, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. In the New English translation, it translates it, communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. In other words, sound biblical teaching has practical implications for how you live. There are things that you and I ought to do in response to what Jesus has done for us. There are ways in which the truths that are found in God's word, if you really believe that they're true, they will change the way that you live. And here in the following verses, Paul's going to speak to these four different demographics, these different groups of people in the church, about how the gospel and the teachings of the Bible ought to change the way that we live practically. 
Now, here's what's important for you to know and to keep in mind as we look at this section. First of all, keep this in mind. The Bible is a book that tells us how to live. It tells us how to live. And yet, whenever the Bible gives us practical instructions about how to live, those instructions are always rooted in a response to who God is and what God has done. Let me say that one more time. Whenever the Bible gives us practical instructions about how to live, those instructions are always rooted in a response to who God is and what God has done. In other words, when God says, do this or don't do that, the reason he tells us to do those things is always in response to something about who he is in his character or what he has done in his actions. Another important thing to keep in mind when we talk about these instructions for how to live is this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, God tells us, he says, whenever he gives us instructions or commands, he says those commands are for our good always. For our good always. In other words, God isn't just bored out of his mind, right? And has nothing better to do than just be a cosmic killjoy up there, you know, trying to squash anybody's fun, right? Down up there with a sour look on his face, making sure that nobody down there is having any fun. So he makes up some arbitrary, meaningless rules, and then he gets mad at us if we don't keep them. That's how some people think about God, right? But no, no, this is the picture the Bible gives us of God, that he's a loving father who's been around longer than you have and he knows some stuff that you don't and he loves you. And because he loves you and because he knows some things that you don't know, he gives you instructions for your good always. He shows you the right way to go so you can walk in it. So as we read these verses, keep those things in mind. God's instructions are for your good always, and they're rooted in a response to who he is and the things that he has done for you. So let's get on with this. Sound doctrine leads to practical change. Look at what Paul says in verse two. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So in verses two through six here in chapter two, Paul is going to give instructions to Titus about specific areas in which he ought to disciple specific groups of people in the church. And the first group that Paul addresses are the older men. Now, this week I turned 40, which is, which is interesting because, you know, I became, a, I became a pastor when I was 20 years old. I became a lead pastor when I was 21 years old. And I, I lived in Hungary and part of, I was part of this group of pastors. Uh, there were about 20 of us. And I was always the youngest one. And they would always give me a hard time about it. I was super self-conscious about being such a young pastor, right? And they would always, you know, tease me and give me a hard time about it. Well, recently, uh, earlier this year, you know, I was back in Hungary and I was with some of these guys. And one of those guys who always gave me a hard time about being so young, he started doing it again. He started giving me a hard time. And I told him, hey man, you know, the thing is, now I'm not really young anymore. And I guess that means that you're just, really old, right? Because it's like, look, I mean, uh, I'm not sure when you cross that line. Like as I read this text, I'm like, which group am I in? I think, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure every day I'm getting closer to being in this group that he addresses first, right? But listen, one of the things you notice in this list is that every one of the things that Paul talks about for each group of people, that there are principles there which actually apply to everyone who's a Christian, 
But these things apparently tend to be bigger potential pitfalls for people in particular age groups and demographics. So the first thing he says is for older men to be sober-minded. Now, what does it mean to be sober-minded? I would say this, to be sober-minded, it does not refer merely to not being under the controlling influence of drugs or alcohol. What what this speaks of here particularly is it means to be clear-headed, to be stable. In other words, to be sober-minded means that you're not a slave to your emotions. You're able to be even-keeled rather than flying off the handle or becoming an emotional wreck. In an emotionally charged situation, you're able to be a stabilizing presence that helps other people think clearly and to respond in the right way. And where does that come from? Because remember, each of these instructions that he gives, it's rooted in something about who God is and what God has done. So where do you get that ability to be sober-minded, clear-headed, level-headed. Well, it comes from, it's rooted in an understanding of who God is, that God is sovereign, that God is providential, that there is a God in this world who sits on the throne, and he is a God who is able and ready to give wisdom to those who need it and those who ask for it. And so rather than being swept away by emotions of fear or anger or anxiety, We can slow down and remember who God is in the midst of that situation. We can ask him for wisdom for how to respond in that situation. Next, he says, older men are also to be dignified, which means to act in a way that is worthy of respect. Respect, of course, is is something that often has to be earned, but in many cases, it's something which people give you based on a position or in the case of older people, sometimes because of your age. But listen, the thing about respect and dignity, right, is that you can easily lose it by the way that you act, if you act in a way that is sinful or foolish. So Paul then says that older men need to be self-controlled. Now, self-control is interesting because self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what we read in the book of Galatians chapter 5, right? That one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit working in your life is that you will become self-controlled. So self-control can be defined as the ability to tell yourself no. The ability to do the right thing even when you don't feel like doing it. And self-control, here's what's really interesting. On the one hand, yes, it's a fruit of the Spirit. On the other hand, it's also a lot like a muscle. Right? Self-control is something that you can exercise and build up and grow in and strengthen through use. And so on the one hand, God gives you the ability by his spirit to be self-controlled. But on the other hand, you also need to use, utilize, and practice that ability in order to strengthen it by turning to him and depending on him in those times of temptation. Paul then says that older men should be, he says, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sound doctrine, in other words, healthy doctrine, should lead to robust faith. You know, for some people, age can make them cynical or callous or bitter. In other words, age doesn't always make us better, right? For some of us, it can make us cynical about life or callous or bitter. But faith is really the opposite of cynicism, isn't it? Faith is inherently optimistic. Faith means that you take God at his word and you believe in his ability to do incredible things, even things which are humanly impossible. 
And not only by faith do you expect God to do great things, but faith in God is what causes you to be able to step out in obedience to God and follow his leading because you know that no matter what the outcome of that situation, you can trust him to take care of you. And you know that because of Jesus and what he's done, for us who trust in him, the best is always yet to come. See, many people as they get older, I've noticed that they tend to become risk averse. They become risk averse. But faith is what allows us to take good, godly risks to do right and good things. And so as we study the word of God, what it should produce in us is a robust sense of faith in God's character and a robust sense of faith that urges us and makes us willing to do his will, even when it's scary or when it's hard. It should produce in us a robust sense of love for others and a robust endurance to keep going for the long haul. To those of you who are older, I just want to speak to you now and tell you this. Your wisdom is an asset to our church. I hope that you know that. I hope that you feel valued and appreciated. Your wisdom is an asset to the church. Your experience and knowledge is an asset to our church. We're glad you're here. And the younger members of our church, they need the things that you have to offer. And it would be a shame for you to keep those things to yourself. Listen, there can be a tendency for older people, as I've talked to people who are older than me, to tell me as you get older that they feel undervalued. They feel that they're not valued or wanted or utilized. There can also be a tendency for older people to look down on younger people or to write them off and dismiss them as lazy or disrespectful. You know, the younger generation, they're always like this or like that, right? I want to urge you who are older, instead of bemoaning the state of the younger generation, I encourage you to do something about it. Listen, take the opportunity to pour into them and to shape them, to teach them and encourage them. We here at the church, we want to give you opportunities to do that. I'll tell you one, it's just one opportunity. Next week, we're starting to take signups for helpers in our next-gen ministry, and maybe that's a way you can get involved. But listen, what the Bible gives us here is a vision for inter- generational discipleship, intergenerational discipleship in which people of different ages are interacting with one another as one body in a way that's mutually beneficial. The younger generations need the strength and experience and wisdom of the older generations. And the older generations, they need the strengths that the younger generation has to share with them. I was talking to a young guy this week and telling him that one of the great things about younger people is that they are idealistic and full of hope. You know, young people find it very easy to believe that with God, all things are possible. And that's good. You know that? We who are older, we need some of that around us to remind us and inspire us. I went to a gathering for Barna Research Group a few years ago, and they gave us this exercise which said, complete this sentence. And it was, uh, at the time, this is like years ago, but they said, millennials are, and they asked people to raise their hand and answer that. And everybody had something negative to say, entitled, lazy, the worst, right? But the guy said, well, okay, you know what else millennials are? They want to be heroic. They believe in truth, right? There are so many good values and things like that. And that's what I'm saying is that the younger generation finds it very easy to be idealistic. And you know what? We need some of that. We need that 
willingness and ability to believe that with God, all things are possible. Of course, he's God. That's good. We need some of that to remind us and inspire us. And that's why it's a mistake when churches separate their congregations into sometimes they'll do traditional service for the older crowd and contemporary service for the younger crowd. I was just talking to Pastor Mike about this this week, and he pointed out, you know, music is something which really divides people across generational lines. And older people tend to complain that, you know, the newer songs, they don't know them, the music's too loud. And the younger people, they tend to complain that the older people's music is slow and boring. But listen, Mike said, you know what, though, there's a huge opportunity here to love each other and serve each other, encourage each other by embracing each other's music. And here's why. For older people, right, you get to love and encourage the younger people in their faith by embracing their music rather than being down on it. You get to encourage them in it. Listen, for younger people, you get the opportunity to love and encourage the older people by embracing their music. And That's the approach that we take at this church. I'm sure you've noticed it and seen it. We want to be a multi-generational church, which is characterized by intergenerational discipleship because younger people need what the older people have to share and the older people need what the younger people bring. So no matter who you are, you are going to benefit from being around people who are not like you, who are not in your same age group or demographic. And I want to encourage you, rather than sitting back, let us be people who step up. Man, it's easy. And frankly, that's the lazy thing is to sit back. But let's be those who step up. Let's be those who reach out. Rather than focusing on our own preferences, let's seek ways that we can serve and encourage one another. And as we do, we all become richer in faith and love and endurance. And by the way, what a timely text for us on our Youth Takeover Sunday. So again, I encourage you to reach out to the younger people you see today and welcome them in as an important part of our body. Starting in verse three now, Paul shifts from speaking to older men. He now speaks to older women. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. You know, slander means to speak about someone in a way that destroys their reputation in somebody else's eyes, that tears them down in someone else's mind. What's interesting about this word, slanderer, do you know what the word is in Greek? It's the word diabolos, which literally means devil. Tell them not to be devils. And what does it mean to be a devil? It means to be a slanderer, to tear people down, to make accusations about people that destroy them. The reason for this is because the word devil in Greek literally means accuser or slanderer because that's one of the works of the devil. He loves to tear people down and destroy people. He seeks to tear down our view of God by making slanderous accusations about God. So the devil will accuse God slanderously of not really speaking the truth, of not really loving you, of not really having your best interest in mind. The devil will seek to slander you in your own mind, by bringing up all the bad things that you've done, throwing them in your face, and and making you feel that God could never possibly love or forgive or embrace somebody like you. Now, the work of the devil, Jesus said, is the devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said, he is the father of lies. How How do we combat those accusations of the devil? Well, we do it the same way that Jesus combated the accusations of the devil. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he responded with the word of God. When the devil throws your past sins in your face, 
you remember and you remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you, that he knows all of your sins. He knows the worst about you, and yet he loves you, and he paid the price for those sins already. And here's the, th- here's the thing. What this verse tells us is that it is possible for you, if you're not careful, to actually do the devil's work for him. And one of the ways you can do that, the way you can do the devil's work for him, is by speaking about others in slanderous ways, by destroying them with your words in the eyes of other people. Listen, friends, I don't think that we should be helping the devil at all. Like, he's not our friend, guys, right? Like, rather than doing the work of the devil, rather than helping him out and doing his work for free, let us be those who do the work of God with our words, right? Speaking gracious words, both to other people and about other people. Paul says also that older women should not be slaves to much wine. Now that phrase, much wine, it's kind of a, you know, it's up for interpretation. How much is much, right? That's a, it's a subjective term there. And he says they shouldn't be slaves. But here's the thing. Every, anybody I've ever known who I would look at and say, I think that person's a slave to much wine. They don't think they're a slave to much wine. So how do you know if you're a slave to much wine? Well, I'll tell you a couple red flags to look out for, a good rule of thumb. Listen, if you're turning to alcohol or any other substance for that matter to cope with anxiety or stress, if you're using alcohol or substances to cope with disappointments when you experience something disappointing in your life, if you need it in order to relax or calm down or fall asleep even, Those are some major red flags. And the problem with that is not just physical addiction. The problem with that is that there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. And that's this, that you're turning to a substance to seek that for which you should be turning to the Lord, to give you that which only God can truly give you. And by doing it, you know, you're not actually getting a solution. You're just pushing the pause button on that thing. It didn't fix anything. In essence, right, what you're doing is you're, you're hijacking that situation that God wants to use in your life to draw you closer to him and to help you grow and deepen in faith. And instead, you're becoming a slave to some substance. And again, this applies not just to alcohol. It applies to other substances which people turn to or even other activities that people use in order to, to escape or to hide. What happens is, if you keep turning to those things to escape and to hide, rather than turning to the Lord, you can easily wind up as a slave to that thing, whether it's marijuana, whether it's pornography. Maybe, maybe it can be other things which in themselves can be good things, but people use them to escape, right? Things like video games or overworking or working out all the time, right? Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse 34, he said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, it's not just a bad habit. It's not just a, a, you know, some, a character flaw. It's more than that. You're becoming a slave to that thing. And here's why that's so ironic, because so many times we think that when we are sinning, we think I'm exercising my freedom, my autonomy from God. And Jesus says, you know what you're doing when you sin? That's the essence of bondage. That's the essence of bondage. That thing has a hold on you. You're not truly a free person. And if you keep going down that road, it will hurt you and even destroy you. 
Jesus said, though, that the reason he came was to set us free. And he said, if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And so the goal as people who have been set free in Jesus is not to use our freedom, it's to not use our freedoms in such a way that brings us back into bondage. The way that the gospel enables you to be a truly free person is because now in Christ, you realize you have the resources in Christ to deal with everything that life brings your way without turning to substances or or any addictive or escapist behaviors, which enslave rather than truly help. Instead, you have a source of joy through Jesus, a source of hope in God, who is an ever-present help in time of need. You can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. You can seek wisdom and help from him in your time of need, and he will freely give it. With him, there is peace that goes beyond understanding, and that sets us free to no longer be slaves because we now have a relationship with the living God. And this sound doctrine, it not only leads to practical change, but what kind of practical change? Well, first of all, it's practical change which benefits other people. Not only does sound doctrine bring about positive practical change in your life that benefits you, it also brings about change that benefits other people through you. Still speaking to older women, Paul says this in verse three. He says, they are to teach that which is good. This is kind of the positive side. They are to teach that which is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. Now there's some stuff in there that is very countercultural, And we're gonna talk about that in our study next week, okay? So you gotta come back. But here's, I wanna stay on this topic of looking at intergenerational ministry, right? For this week, next week, we're gonna talk about the controversial stuff. And you'll see that if you look at the verses that come after as well. But Paul's vision for the church is that older women would mentor and teach younger women. In other words, when it came to mentoring or discipling young women in the church, in one-on-one or in small groups, that wasn't the job for Titus to do. It would have been inappropriate and perhaps even dangerous for a male leader to have that kind of close, intimate, spiritual connection with a young woman in the church. Instead, this is an opportunity for women to step up and use their gifts and teach other women. And as God was working in and teaching and shaping those older women, now they were to pass on and seek out and benefit others. These, excuse me, these verses in Titus 2 verses 4 and 5, these are verses which are used by many churches, including our own, as the motivation and the guide for a women's ministry. Paul says in verse six, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Ultimately, through all of these behaviors that are mentioned in this chapter, they serve ultimately a higher purpose. And that's what we see at the end of our sentence, our statement here today, which is sound doctrine leads to practical change, which benefits people. To what end? It brings glory to God. See, Paul had only one instruction in verse six for younger men, but now he continues in verse seven by including Titus in this, which tells us that apparently Titus himself must have been a younger man. And so these instructions for younger men carry on in verse seven as Paul now turns his attention to speaking to Titus directly. He says, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned 
so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Despite Titus's young age, Paul encourages him to be a model for other people to follow. He encourages Titus to be full of integrity and to act in a way that is above reproach. And he tells him why. He says, here's why. Because there are other people out there who are looking to you. They're looking at you and they're looking for, they're seeking a reason to dismiss what you have to say about Jesus, to discredit all of Christianity and the church and all that stuff based on your bad behavior. See, this is the thing. We talked about this last week as well, but it's true. By your actions, you can either make it harder for people to believe in Jesus, to trust in him and to walk with him, or by your actions, you can actually make it really hard for people to not believe in Jesus. In other words, by your actions, Peter, the apostle Peter, he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says you can actually do what he says. You can bring the way of truth into disrepute by your actions. Or by your actions, you can actually bring glory to God. In 1 Peter, Peter says, live in such good ways, right? Live such godly lives amongst the pagans that they see your good deeds and glorify God. Jesus himself said that. He said, let your light so shine before people that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So let me ask you this question for you to reflect on and think about as you go. What would it look like for you to live in such a way that if someone observed your life, it would be hard for them not to believe in Jesus? Because they see that transformation that's taking place. That kind of transformed life that we see described here in Titus chapter 2. It's the result of embracing the sound doctrine that God has given us in the scriptures, in the Bible. So let me ask you this question as well for you to ponder on and think about this week. What would it look like for you to live as if God is truly sufficient to meet every need that you have? He is what would it look like for you to really embrace that and live in response to that? What would it look like for you to live as if God is truly sufficient to meet every need that you have? What would it look like if you truly embraced and believed that what God's word says is true about who he is and what he's done? How would that change your life in practical ways? I love what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. Paul says a simple phrase. He says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Listen, in other words, when we gather to worship, these aren't just a bunch of nice words and positive talk. We believe that this is the very power of God to transform lives and bring about real change. And one of the key ways that that change takes place is through sound doctrine, by embracing and believing what God has revealed to us about who he is and what he has done. Friends, the message of the gospel is that the almighty God of the universe loves you so much that he took on human flesh. He came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a life of sinless perfection and he died a death of sacrificial substitution in your place and on your behalf because he loves you. So that rather than being condemned, you could be redeemed. And Jesus rose from the grave in order to make the way for you to have life everlasting. And the way to receive that gift and experience forgiveness and redemption and new life is by putting your trust in him today. And when you really understand who God is and what he's done for you, it changes the way that you live. It causes you, for example, to be clear-headed and confident. It causes you to turn 
to him in time of need and for solutions rather than turning to distractions and trying to hide and escape. It fills you with faith and a sense of hope, even in the face of difficulty. It gives you a purpose in life, which is bigger than just pleasing yourself or carrying out your own preferences. I want to encourage you this week, friends, study the word of God. It's a treasure that we have, but don't just study it. I want you to consider the practical implications of what, it, of what believing what it says would do for your life when it comes to who God is and what he has done for you. So sound doctrine leads to practical change, which benefits people and brings glory to God. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 